those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favour rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Well, good morning, friends, and welcome to church this morning, and particular welcome if you are uh, joining us here today for Christmas. My name's John Thorpe. I'm the senior minister here at City Anglican. We're going to spend some time in that passage, but let me just pray uh, that God might guide that time together. Dear Lord, as we come together now to celebrate the events of Christmas, I pray that I might be faithful to your word that we might genuinely appreciate and understand and know the significance of you sending your son to dwell amongst us. Amen. There's something powerful about a promise. In the Bible, it's simply doing what you say you will do. So it doesn't require a particular formula of words. It doesn't require you know, the words, I promise, to be in the sentence. It doesn't have to include swearing on your mother's life or her death or grave. In fact, it doesn't have to involve your mother at all. I'm not quite sure how mothers got involved, but it's simply letting your yes be yes and your no be no. And the beauty and the strength of a promise is seen in the faith of the other person who's willing to take your word at your word, to actually trust what you are saying is true. And so when we say to our our small children, jump and I will catch you, there's something wonderful in just their their gleeful face as they launch themselves at you and completely trusting that you will catch them. Now, our children are a little older now, so it wouldn't work so well. (laughs) And certainly as we get older, that unwavering trust in another person 
can seem a little naive. Uh, after school, uh, very briefly, I decided to earn some money with a mate uh, buying and selling cars. And so we used to go to the auctions and uh, you'd pick up a car that you know, was you know, there because of finance or repossession or stolen or recovered. And we, we'd clean it up a bit and then, and then we'd sell it. Uh, so, so this is a place called Pickles in Sydney. Uh, that's where we used to go. It looks a little nicer these days. Uh, for those who have been to you know, some of our other services, this is where I bought the almighty 1981 beige automatic four-cylinder Tirana. Okay, and it was just as special as it sounds. But, uh, but it, was, you know, it, was, it was great, you know, you know, just sort of doing this buying and selling cars thing. You couldn't make a living out of it, but, you know, we survived. A little bit after that, I, I briefly uh, went into a, a career in real estate. Uh, it didn't last very long, but, I, but I was, again, in that sort of position of, of buying and selling things, and particularly selling houses. And one of the things I, I learned in that season of life is a deal is never done until it's done. Until the cash is in the bank and the keys are in the other person's hand and they're driving off down the street, the deal isn't done. And even then I was kind of waiting for the car to explode. But, uh, you know, in life, you know, it's not always that people are malicious. Uh, you know, they, they say things, they intend to do things. But in life, it doesn't always work out the way we expect. And it's quite easy, isn't it? We sometimes point the finger at other people and want to blame them. And we've got high expectations of other people keeping their word. But we're not always quite so good when it comes to our word. And of course, for them, it's, you know, they're, they're being malicious in you know, not keeping their word. For us, when we don't keep our word, we tend to justify ourselves and we tend to be victims of circumstance. Uh, thankfully... God is faithful to his word. And thankfully, he actually has the capacity to deliver on his word. And so at Christmas, we celebrate that faithfulness. So to pick up the events of that first night, we have a bunch of shepherds sitting in a field. And that would have been a night like a thousand nights before. And then everything changes. An angel of the Lord appears to them and they are rightly terrified. You know, people often say extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. And if you were one of those shepherds in the field that night, then an angel coming and standing amongst you, and then a whole lot of angels coming, uh, would be quite compelling proof. Of course, it wasn't the only proof that Jesus was God in the flesh. You know, time and time again, we read in the Bible how Jesus had the power to do the impossible. You know, the power to heal the sick, to overcome evil, to even control nature. Even those who hated Jesus didn't doubt his power. But Jesus didn't come simply to improve our personal circumstances. Uh, God has bigger plans for humanity and Jesus comes to fulfill all of those promises that God has made in the Old Testament. So today I just want to pick up briefly three of those promises. God promises to save us from sin. He promises to save us for a better present and he promises to save us for a perfect future. And at Christmas, we remember the moment that God sets all of that in motion. 
And so today I just want to reflect on one verse uh, that we read. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And to appreciate the bigness of the moment and the sense of anticipation, we need to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, which I appreciate the Bible is quite a large book, but this will be the highly, highly abridged version. Because right back at the beginning, God sets apart Israel as his chosen people. He promises that through this one nation, he would reveal his glory to all nations. Now, there's nothing like a a little bit of anticipation uh, to build the moment. Certainly, you know, for the younger ones here today, Christmas has been a long time in the coming. But for Israel, it has been a very long journey uh, with plenty of highs and lows along the way. So at one point, uh, Israel are a slave nation in Egypt. Uh, That was a low. But then God gives them a land of their own and they become an independent nation uh, amongst all the nations around them. That was certainly a high. Uh, Then there's civil war, which was a low. The Assyrians conquering them, then the Babylonians. Then they returned from exile. That was a high. But then came the Greeks and after the Greeks came the Romans. So as Israel is this tiny nation amongst these great empires... It could feel at different times that, you know, God is allowing everyone else to prosper. You know, they're getting remote control monster trucks for Christmas and Israel, they're getting socks and undies. And there were plenty of times when they question God's faithfulness and even his capacity. You know, maybe God doesn't have the power to actually deliver on his promises. So they want God to save them from the problems of the world and to bless them and to give them a prosperous, happy, fulfilling life. And they want to be free from the nations around them and they want to be free to live life their way. And I think to our ears, that all sounds pretty reasonable. But what they don't see is the connection between their struggles with the nations around them and their lack of faithfulness to God. And so the less faithful they are, the more they struggle and suffer at the hands of the nations around them. And they think all of this bad stuff is happening because God isn't doing his job. But in reality, God is using the rise and fall of kingdoms to discipline his people and to teach them a lesson about faithfulness, but also obedience. And really, on a society level, we're just not that different. So we feel entitled to good things from God. And at the same time, we feel we have the right to choose our own life. And God should honour that life choice and even endorse and celebrate those choices. And of course, he should protect us from any unforeseen, you know, unfortunate circumstances that might come out of our choices. So we want God to fix the problems of the world, but we just don't recognise that we're actually part of the problem. And this whole attitude to life and to God is captured in the one simple word in the Bible, and that's sin. And God says to Israel, it's the same message to us, that before we can start talking about prosperity and, and happiness and a fulfilling life, we need to talk about sin. 
And dealing with sin is at the heart of all of God's promises. So just to pick up a few passages from the Old Testament, as a church we've been working our way through the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And so let me just take you through his journey of what God wants for his people. So let me start with the problem. So the Lord says, this is picking up the book of Isaiah, I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. So whatever moral woes we have as a society, the real problem, the heart of the problem, is our rejection of God. And it's such a mess, you kind of wonder sometimes, you know, why does God even persevere? You know, where do you even start to fix this world? You know, it might just be tempting to go, you know what, why don't we just start with a clean slate? But he doesn't do that. And as we continue in Isaiah, he promises to save those who trust him. And so they look forward to a day when they can say, in that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. So the biggest problem isn't our moral behaviour and being a moral person isn't the solution. But thankfully, God has promised a a solution where he is the one who will deal with our sin. He is the one who will save and restore. And as we continue even further into the book of Isaiah, we see how God will save and it will come at a terrible price. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. So these words were said a long way before Jesus. And now finally in this tiny nobody town, in a nobody part of Israel, in a nobody part of the world, we see these promises being fulfilled. And an angel declaring, today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. As we remember the events of that first Christmas night, we remember Jesus as a vulnerable baby in a manger. It's an image that perhaps more than any other uh, captures his humanity. And that's important because as he shares in our humanity, it also qualifies him to be our saviour. He is a genuine like-for-like substitute. In sport, we have the subs bench and the, the whole point of the subs bench is that they will be a substitute and take the place of another player. And normally it's an opportunity for glory, to prove yourself. And for Jesus, it will end in glory, but only after he endures the humiliation of the cross. Because that's where he'll take our place and die the death that we deserve to bear the consequences of our sin. And he does it because we are loved. And we are precious to God and he wants to show mercy and he wants us to have life. I suspect though for most of us, you know, we live relatively good and comfortable lives. uh, And so we struggle to hear that and come to a place of, you know, genuine sort of fall on your knees thankfulness. You know, we hear it and it's just familiar, kind of can lack punch. 
uh, years and years ago, uh, I had uh, a nosebleed. I had an artery rupture uh, in, in my sinuses after some surgery. And, and uh, I won't go into all the gory detail. I'd love to go into the gory detail, but I, I don't think everyone would appreciate that. Um, but but I, I called an ambulance and, and uh, they ended up in hospital and they're stuffing all this stuff up my nose to try to stop it. And I've got two transfusions going to try to compensate for yeah, how much blood I'm losing. And then finally they transferred me to another hospital and uh, I live, by the way. Uh, and, um, uh, but after all of this happened, uh, my sister-in-law, who's a doctor, uh, wrote to me and said, I-, I want you to appreciate just how serious things were for you. And she'd seen sort of the stats of what was going on. And I'd really lost so much blood that you know, it starts to affect things like brain function and, and your heart pumping and things like that. And she goes, I want you to recognise that and just to be thankful to God for his uh, goodness and grace to us, and, and, and I, or to you. And, and I suspect that's, that's the same for us with sin, that sometimes we just don't appreciate the seriousness of our situation. And probably the closest we ever come to genuinely appreciating our sin is when we're confronted with that prospect of death. But isn't that just a little bit tragic, that we need the threat of death to recognise our sin, but also the goodness of God and just how fortunate we are that he is faithful to his promises. So part of being saved is Jesus dealing with our sin, but it also includes bringing hard hearts to the point of recognising that goodness. So God moves our heart from a place of contempt or perhaps a place of apathy to a place where we desire to see him honoured and we recognise his mercy. And he moves our heart to a place that hates the destructiveness and the selfishness of sin and embraces the wisdom of his word and the joy and the hope that we have and the peace that we have that comes with following Christ. And part of that new life is recognising that God knows best about how we should live. So not only is Jesus the one who saves, he's the Messiah, the Lord. He's the one to whom we owe our allegiance and who calls us to honour and obey. And contrary to popular belief, he's the one who decides what is right and wrong. And so if we are committed to following him, if we call ourselves a Christian, then we commit ourselves to doing right. You know, Jesus shared his life with the marginalised of society, with the thieves and the prostitutes and the sinners of the world. But he doesn't say, you know, keep doing what you're doing and how can I help you feel more comfortable in your sin? He says, I love you, but he also calls them to repent and to turn away from who they were and to embrace who God wants them to be. And he knows what he's doing. Uh, But I'm not sure we always set ourselves up to listen. So imagine this morning uh, that you are getting a new phone for Christmas. Is that true for anyone? One or two, there we go. But uh, Okay, so some of us... Uh, We'll glance at the card, Uh, we'll shred our way through the paper, we'll throw away the disproportionately large instruction manual and the link to the online disproportionately large instruction manual and we'll go straight for the beautiful object inside. Uh, Others uh, will savour the card. 
you'll remove the paper with surgical precision. And then you'll set aside the gift and proceed to devour enthusiastically the disproportionately large instruction manual and you will marvel at all the wonderful features of this new device. Now, I've only heard rumours of such people. And certainly, I haven't seen any evidence in our household. However, and it does pain me to say this, I have discovered that things tend to work better when we use them in the way they were designed. You know, God, in his goodness, not only created us and saves us into a relationship with him, but he shows us how to live. And most significantly, he does that through the Bible, but also through his spirit. Uh, that gives us the clarity we need to see that his way is actually good. And the Spirit moves our will and gives us the conviction to do the things that we find impossible to do, to do the right things that we find hard or to flee the wrong things that just tempt us so much. Uh, we certainly don't get, get it right all the time. There are plenty of times when we get it wrong. But even then, uh, God's Word shows us the value of seeking forgiveness. Uh, and the value of forgiving. Uh, so he doesn't just save us from the consequences of our sin. He saves us into a better life. But that better life doesn't mean that we are exempt from car accidents or falling downstairs or cancer. You know, God gives good things to the righteous and the unrighteous. And equally, we all suffer in the brokenness of life. So we're not exempt. But even in the worst of times, his salvation helps us to navigate the mess. And even when there is no solution in the present, it allows us to look forward to a better future. This is a brief point, but I do love these words in Romans. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know, we should love life in the present. It's a gift from God, and God has shown us how to get the best out of life. But it's good to know that even in amongst the messiness of life and the hurt and the disappointment, that God has better things in store for those who love him, uh, that he has secured our salvation and that our future well, at that future, helps us then persevere in the present. And we can be confident of that future because if God has been faithful to his promises in the past, then we can be confident that he'll be faithful in the future. You know, God promises his people a better life. Uh, but as we read the big picture of the Bible, we realise that it's bigger than simply a comfortable life or a happy life or a life with more money or a nicer house. It's not even about better relationships or better friendships. You know, all of those things are good. Uh, we should be thankful for those good things when we have them. But even more significant than those things... We are created to live in a relationship with the God who created us. And that becomes the foundation for all those other good things. That's what gives meaning and purpose to all of those other good things. And the first step to restoring that relationship is dealing with sin. 
we know that we can't do that ourselves. And so we are thankful that God does it for us. And that's what God has promised to do. And today we remember and we celebrate what he has done. Uh, So I hope uh, through all the bustle of Christmas that it really is a day of celebrating Christ and that it's an opportunity to savour those words uh, as the angel says, today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is Messiah, the Lord. Amen.